Welcome to Biblical Literacy 101. This is a weekly in-person class taught at Columbus Baptist Church. This course is a verse-by-verse deep dive into the scriptures. We encourage you to listen to these recordings and follow along with your Bible open. With that being said, let's get into this week's class. Well, welcome to Biblical Literacy 101. Before we get started in diving into Psalms chapters 16 and 17, I'd like to open us up in prayer. So God, thank you for bringing us all here safely together to dive into your word. Let tonight be very fruitful and exciting uh, as we get into some of the topics we'll be discussing tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, And I want to also say thank you to those who are listening to the podcast. Um, You are not forgotten. (laughs) Um, So, like I said, tonight we're going to be going over chapters 16 and 17. I will be stopping after chapter 16, kind of like I did last time when I taught, to do a time of questions and answers or just comments. Comments are okay too, it doesn't have to be questions. Um, So if at any point during this you have something that comes to mind, just jot it down. That way when I stop you can ask that question or say that comment. I highly suggest comments as well because it doesn't have to just be questions. I like to hear from you as well. Um, So, this is fun. As of last week, we have studied 10% of the book of Psalms. So 15 out of 150, and that doesn't sound significant because it seems low, but that's pretty good. That's pretty good. We're on track, right? Um, And what's interesting, I don't know about you, but I've only ever read through the book of Psalms chronologically when I was following a, like, reading plan. I followed one that was like, read the book of Psalms in 60 days. Um, Typically when I'm reading Psalms, it's just jumping around, or it's when I'm reading my study Bible and there's a note that says, reference Psalm this to see what they're talking about. And it's like, okay, because it's such a big book. It's like, there's so much to go through. Um, But I I have read through it chronologically. This this will be the second time that I've actually done that with this study. But when I was doing the read the Psalms in 60 days, I forget exactly which one it was, um, the reading plan suggested asking yourself three questions after you've finished reading your chapters for the day. So sometimes it would be one chapter, sometimes it would be multiple, depending on uh, what the plan was. Um, I don't remember exactly what these questions were, but from my memory, this is kind of what they uh, looked like. There's three questions. The first was, you ask yourself, what is the main theme of this psalm? Second question, how can this psalm inform my thoughts, words, and actions? And then the third question to ask yourself was, what does this teach me about God? So I've broken these three questions into three categories that I think helps uh, me kind of dive into these bigger psalms. So question one, I've categorized as overview overview of the psalm. Question two, I've categorized as application. And then question three, I've categorized as relationship. And to help my brain remember this, I've made an acronym of OR. (laughs) O-A-R. Because these questions, if we ask them at the end of it, can kind of help us move forward through the psalms. Uh, just like an oar cuts through the water to move a canoe and helps you navigate efficiently, right? Um, And I think this is a helpful way for us to not get caught up in the length 
of Psalms as a whole. Like I just said, we're only 10% through it. That can sound kind of daunting. Um, or maybe even sometimes the length of the individual Psalms themselves. We haven't done any yet, but there's going to be some that are like 60 verses in length. Um, and that can be a lot. So I think or this overview application and relationship is a good balance of what we should be looking at. So overview gives us like the main theme as well as any uh, context that may be important. So who the writer is, uh, why they wrote it, when it was written. Application gives us the time to reflect on ourselves and reflect on what the psalm is saying and how it may change our day-to-day -day interactions or how we pray or even how we compose ourselves. And then relationship uh, is what is God, what, what is this teaching me about God, right? What about this is giving me more insight into the attributes of God and what does this knowledge, how does this knowledge affect and strengthen my relationship with him? So this is a little helpful study tool that I've been using when going through this. Um, so as we study together and when we read at home, we need to balance it properly. Um, if I only focused on the O, if I only focused on the overview of each Psalms, like just taking the theme, the context. So like David wrote this one, it's about King Saul. David's feeling lonely, there's 26 verses. Um, then it would kind of be like drifting downstream in a canoe with no oar, right? Uh, this Sunday, Pastor John actually made a similar analogy um, when he said, like, when you're tied to a dock, right? If you take that rope and untie it and then throw it into the boat and you kind of look down and you're focused on something else and then you look up again, suddenly you're downstream and you're not where you wanted to be because you were paying attention to something else. Whereas you focus on everything around you, all your surroundings, you wouldn't get, you wouldn't go off course. Um, so I'm not saying, I'm not saying that building up a biblical knowledge, like in the overview section, is a bad thing or an incorrect thing to do. I'm just saying it's not the only thing to do. Um, it can become easy to get excited about learning about the Bible, but then never apply it or build your relationship with God. But if we focus correctly when we learn together like this, we won't be able to not apply it to our lives or be awestruck by the attributes of God. And I'd like to read another passage before we get into 16 that I think summarizes my or analogy that I've created uh, fairly well. And this is Colossians uh, 3, 16 through 17. It says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So that's, that's kind of all of it, right? So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the overview. That's soaking in all, all the aspects of the Bible passage that you're reading, trying to get that in. Uh, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns, spiritual songs. That's the application. That's how we live that out, right? With thankfulness in our hearts to God. And whatever you do, again, still application. In word or deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus. And then here we go, relationship at the end. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Making sure that we're making that connection still. It's not just application to others around us. It's building that relationship. So that... That's or, that's, that's, that's my thought. So during our Q&A time, I'm not requiring that we ask questions <laughs> in one of these three categories that I've created, but it's been helpful to me when um, getting to the end, because a lot of these Psalms are gonna feel the same. We're gonna feel like we're getting the same aspects and the same concepts out of them. And these three categories kind of help us really question what we're actually reading. Um, and I hope this maybe helps you in your own personal study time. I'm not sure if it will, but it's been helping me. Yeah, and when we come together like times like this, we can kind of say, what did we walk away with?
well, what did I get out of that, other than like a whole mishmash of things that you could have uh, grabbed out of there? So, with that being said, let's actually get into our uh, first chapter, which is chapter 16. And for those who are reading along or listening to the podcast, we are using the ESV translation, which is the English Standard Version. So, if you have a way to get that, that'll be helpful to follow along. But I would like to start by just reading the entire verse. It's only 11 verses. Um, and I think it might be good just to go through it as a whole before we dive into it. So we'll start with verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So there's a lot. There's a lot in this. A lot of good stuff. But we're going to go piece by piece and kind of figure out what this is saying. Before we even get in, to the verses, as I mentioned last time, there's a psalm title. Hooray! Um, we're greeted by the title in our ESVs. It says, you will not abandon my soul. Um, in the NASB, the title is uh, the Lord, the psalmist portion in life and salvation and death. And if you're reading the New King James Version, the title will be the hope of the faithful and the Messiah's victory, which is really, I think, the most accurate one out of all three, um, and I'll explain why later, but it's something you could easily miss. It could be a misleading title if you didn't pay attention. Um, also, right under that, we have a little subtitle, a miktam, or miktam, however you would pronounce that in Hebrew, a miktam of David. This is the first time we're seeing this term in the Bible. Um, and once again, we are kind of uncertain of what this meaning is. Some are saying based on the context, it is a musical term of undefined nature, which hopefully when we get to heaven, I can figure out what that is. Um, but it's also been cited as meaning the word golden or to cover. Um, and like I was saying, this is the first time we're seeing this term uh, mictum. Uh, and it shows up five other times and it's only in the Psalms. So right now we have it in 16. It's going to show up again in chapter 56, chapter 57, chapter 58. Can I keep going? Chapter 59 and chapter 60, all in a row. So it says random 16, and then they're all blocked together. So the significance is most likely a musical term, but we just don't know what it means. Um, and why some say it means golden, I'll explain later. But the important thing is a mictum of David. So it's written by David, so we know that much. That's the important part. So... Let's dive in again, uh, going back to the beginning, verse 1. I'm gonna, just going to reread verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I take refuge. Some translations say, for in you I put my trust, 
but I like this one more because the original Hebrew translates this as to seek refuge. So I think actually using the word refuge here makes sense or to flee for protection. But it's also used in, this word is also used in the context of trust as well. So in verse one, David is just basically saying, guard me. <laughs> um, uh, God, because I know you will. So notice the tone here is not despair. He's uh, almost like in a tone of acceptance, like he's settling into joy, if that makes sense. Uh, it's not like, please help me, God. It's preserve me, oh God, for I, in you I take refuge. Um, and we don't know exactly what David's going through right now. Um, he still has the confidence in God, though, clearly, right off the bat. That You'll see a lot of Psalms will do that. He'll start with just right away saying, I've got confidence in you. So moving on, uh, verses 2 and 3, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And then verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. That part I, in verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. How often do you pray this way by yourself? Personally, I don't really often, which is kind of a shame now that I'm realizing I feel more convicted to pray this way in a group setting, to kind of be like, yes, Lord is all of our Lord, right? But in my personal prayer time, I don't typically start off by saying, God, you are my God, or Lord, you are my Lord. It feels like a little foreign, and it was kind of gripping to me to see it in this way, and it's like, no, it is good. It is good for you to pray that way. It is good to pray to your own soul in that way to remind you of who God is, right? Um, something as simple as what he's saying here, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Like, why wouldn't you want to have that communication in your own time? Why do you have to put on this, oh yes, Lord is my Lord now that people are around, right? So David, our prayer coach right now, is kind of saying, hey, do that. That's like the second thing he's saying right away. You know, God, I, I trust you. I take refuge in you, but also you are my Lord. I know that. So that was very um, refreshing, I guess, to me, to remind myself of that. Yeah, I have no good apart from you. Even my best is nothing without you, is what David is saying. David noticed that even the goodness inside of him uh, was a very small value <laughs> uh, with it, without his relationship with God. And see, their relationship, we've already got our R and our OR for this chapter. So yeah, and then read, reading chapter, uh, chapter, verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. I would like to pause on this and talk about this for a while, <laughs> actually, because this really caught me. To delight in the saints, meaning to delight in other Christians, to delight in other people, what a weird thing to say, you know? Um, it's usually that's like connected with I delight in God or something like that, right? This is not a, a typical thing to be seen, at least when I hear from preaching from the pulpit and stuff like that. Delight in each other. Yeah, David is delighting in the people of God, despite all their failings, their problems, and probably their embarrassments as well. He is saying that he still delights in them. Um, like I was saying, this is clearly an issue that I see with Christians today. There is so many negative feelings about the people of God uh, in and out of the church, mostly in the church, though, I will say. Um, that Christians kind of find themselves unable to delight in their fellow brothers and sisters. And I keep saying delight because it's really the best word for it. Um, it's not being proud of like your fellow Christians, uh, but like finding, I guess, immense joy. So delight really kind of categorizes it at the best. I'm going to cite a quote here from someone. Dr. James Boyce, 
He was an American Reformed Christian theologian, Bible teacher, author, uh, and speaker known for his writing on the authority of Scripture. And he said this about this particular part of Psalm uh, 16, verse 3. This is a practical matter, for it is a way. Notice he says a way, not the way. It is a way by which we can measure our relationship to the Lord. Do you love other Christians? Do you find it good and rewarding to be with them? Do you seek their company? This is a simple test. Those who love the Lord will love the company of those who also love him. I'll say that part again. Those who love the Lord will love the company of those who also love him. So I think, I think it's important not to hold our relationship with God so closely that we ignore the parts of the Bible that tell us to love our neighbors and our fellow Christians. Sometimes it's hard to do because you don't feel like you're equals or something, or you don't feel like you can have that conversation with another Christian. You feel like you're on totally different wavelengths or something like that. That is not what this is saying. He is delighting in them despite, despite their faults, right? Yeah, and also last note about verse three, the saints in the land, it says. As for the saints in the land, interesting way to say it. Uh, again, that word for land, uh, like I mentioned in the class for chapters 10 through 11, is the Hebrew word eretz. Um, I think I wrote that, I did. I put it on the screen. Edits, um, which means land, earth, ground, or territory. Um, so this could also be translated as the saints that are on the earth. So that is relevant all the time. <laughs> that is Christians now. Um, so that is, that is not old news, that is new news uh, still for this day. And this word, I wrote it on the, the slide, it occurs in the Bible 2,190 times this Eretz, and most of it is in Genesis. So when he's talking about creating the earth and all the land, it's all in Genesis. So this is a good word to be aware of uh, when reading the Bible, if you ever want to reference the Hebrew and see how that lines up. But yeah, earth and land are pretty interchangeable in most contexts when Eretz shows up. All right, moving on to verse three. I would like to read that again. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Yeah, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. David knows that he's had a tough life already, right? He's got a lot of sorrows and things of his own, but he knows that it would be even more difficult without God. That's kind of what this is saying. Um, and Peter, if you know anything about Peter from the Bible, he kind of said a similar thing in the book of John. And this is after Jesus was doing uh, his talk about, I am the bread of life, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, that whole thing. Um, he lost a couple followers after that thing. It was too hard for them, that, too hard of a concept for them to understand. Um, but if we read John uh, chapter 6, 66 through 69, Peter is kind of saying the same thing. Um, it says, after this, many of disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, which I just mentioned. So Jesus said to the 12, the 12 disciples, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And David is kind of having the same sentiment here, right? Well, Peter's having the same sentiment as David because Peter was after David. But the idea of if I wasn't with you, it would be a lot worse. Where am I supposed to go? You know, there's, there's, it's not like I can't go anywhere else. It's I don't want to go anywhere else, right? Yeah, so li David's saying living life for another God doesn't make sense. And then we have this weird part 
<laughs> their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. This is David's continuation on the point of not taking another god, uh, that he will not be serving other gods. During that time, many other pagan beliefs and practices involved giving man's blood as an offering to idols and gods. This is very typical. So David is acknowledging that this even happened or is happening during his time and saying, nope, that is useless and a waste of energy. Not going to happen. Um, and he's making a point of that to say that in his prayer to God. Then moving on to verses 5 and 6, which I will reread. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David is focusing on something that was spoken by God before in uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 18, verse 20. And the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither, 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 yeah, either one, shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. And that is exactly what he is saying here, David. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Um, yeah, and from a more practical standpoint, uh, David saying, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David knew that being the youngest son uh, in his family of many, many sons, that he was not going to be getting an inheritance from his family because uh, everyone else was going to scoop that up before he could even get to him. But here he is taking comfort and rejoicing that God is his portion of his inheritance. Um, and he knew it was good, hence the language following. Um, the lines or the measured region is how it's put in the Hebrew. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, and I have a beautiful inheritance. This inheritance theme is going to be pretty critical in this chapter, as well as the next chapter of 17. It's very, very interesting. Um, and it's so strange because before I was preparing this, I was having lots of conversations about what that actually means, like our inheritance in the Bible. We hear it a lot, and there's not many things written. There's not many songs about it. It's like a it's a, it's a weird thing to get into, so it was interesting that as I was studying this, I was already thinking towards that, and both of these are very heavily about it. Um, and we'll get into that more. Verses 7 and 8, let's read those again. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night, also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Here we see David's confidence in God again, which is kind of like from the beginning. He's talking about the benefits of God's guidance and security in his life also kind of continuing his thoughts from before, those other, false, all, those other false gods of the nations do not provide counsel, that kind of thought process. Um, when David needed guidance, God gave it to him, so he praised God for that. And then we have this part, in the night also my heart instructs me. I believe this to mean that David was so in line with God uh, and so focused on him that he could almost somewhat rely on his own knowledge of God to keep him on track. Um, so like when your mind is wandering at night and you're looking for help or guidance, God is also available then. Um, and if we're focused on God and knowing he is in control, we can kind of find comfort and confidence in that when our mind is wandering. But even if we don't get that immediate response, like if we're praying, we're saying, God, help me, we can still be confident in knowing that he's in control of the situation, not having to be afraid. And I think that's kind of what this is getting at. Uh, the night also my heart instructs me when it feels like there's a distance, even though there isn't. But then we move into verse eight. I have set the Lord always 
before me. David is saying God is first in my life. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Uh, he is saying, David is saying, he is always there with me by my side, right next to me. And it's uh, interesting because the right hand thing caught me off guard again because I usually see that when it's connected to Jesus and talking about uh, being at the right hand of the Father. And really this right hand is just meaning right. The word actually literally means right or actually right hand. So it just means right next to, that's all. Um, so I've, I was a little concerned when I saw that. I was like, can that be, can that happen? It's like, yeah, that's fine. Um, we're going to see right hand again coming up. So let's just finish out our chapter. I'm going to read uh, 9 through 11, and we'll talk through it real quick. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Super cool! <laughs> Super cool stuff! Um, yeah, here in verse 9, David is glad and rejoicing in his decision to follow God. He knows both the costs and the benefits. But in, again, this is a mictum, so we're assuming this is a song, right? He is kind of singing the song of praise for his life decision at this point. He's saying, he's not saying good for me, but <laughs> he kind of is saying good for me in a way. It's, 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 a, it's a good way of saying good for me. Um, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. David is saying... You got me here on earth, and I'm confident that you won't let my soul die in the grave. Um, he is confident, he's confident and comforted by a continuation in the presence of God. Um, I believe Justin mentioned this in one of his weeks. We've seen this word Sheol before. Um, it's basically meaning hell or grave or underworld or a pit. Um, and then this is interesting, the next part. Uh, or let your Holy One see corruption. At first glance, it may appear that David is referring to himself as your Holy One, which to me made me go, <laughs> how could David do that? Um, but there's two things here, very interesting. If we look at the Hebrew word here for Holy One, which I'm going to butcher how to pronounce it, it's chasid, which means pious, or meaning faithful, kind, godly, Holy One, saint, pious. Um, and there are 32 times it's used in the Bible, this word, this chasid. Um, the other 31 uses of the word is in the same context of the saints. It is not used in this context of referring to the Holy One, or those who are godly, rather. That's, that's what it's really saying. Um, yeah, there is one verse in Jeremiah 3, uh, 12, where the Lord is referring to himself as merciful. And that actual word of merciful is this chasid. So it's like being used in a couple different ways. Um, but I believe this also has a double meaning. It's, it's saying that, like, your holy one, it's saying the saints. But this is the really cool part that I stumbled onto that I think is the most significant part of this whole chapter. Um, David is kind of talking a bit, beyond, a bit beyond his own knowledge at this point. Um, because only Jesus Christ fulfills what David is saying here in Jesus' resurrection. He is saying, let your holy one, uh, do not let your Holy One see corruption. Um, the reason I say that is because Peter says the exact same thing in Acts. He actually quotes this psalm. 
So starting Acts chapter 2, verse 25, he says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, which is Sheol, underworld, um, or let your Holy One see corruption. There it is. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then it continues on. This is Peter still talking, saying, Brothers, I may say to you with the confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would, he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter is basically saying, David wrote this about Jesus without even knowing it which is crazy. Like that's the way that the Bible lines up in that way. Um, whether David actually intended it when he said this Hasid to actually mean the Holy One coming later or just the saint in general, it works, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, and it's, it's super cool. So Peter's quoting this passage from Psalms and saying, yeah, David's body is certainly dead. You know, it's, he's not the Holy One. That's, that's not what this is about. Um, but Jesus completely fulfilled what was being said here. So it's so cool that the Bible can line up in these ways. Um, it's almost like it was designed that way, because it was. So I love that little tidbit there that um, David wrote something so long before his time, and it came to be exactly as it was written, which is super cool. Um, and then lastly, we have verse 11 which I will reread again. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The right hand, again, is the same word as the right hand that we saw in verse 8. I said it would come, and it did. There you go. A payoff. Um, it, it, again, it just means right. It just means the word right, right next to. Um, that closeness that you can get right next to. So David was this whole verse is David excited about his life now and beyond with God. Um, it's like when we talk about eternity or what heaven is even like, right? We don't really have a full concept of what that could be. The ultimate highest and best pleasures forever, eternity. Um, it's kind of mind-boggling. You know, these aren't going to be temporary exciting moments in our lives or just swift entertainment. David is saying his life commitment has meaning and purpose and is not... Um, just about the benefits of guidance from God, but also just the fullness of joy. Uh, that's something that we can all hang on to from time to mind, not just the joy of being saved, but also the joy of knowing who God even is. Yeah, getting to be in his presence forever, and if we use our or to quickly recap, uh, we can see what we are supposed to take from this, or can take from this, not supposed to. This is suggestions. This is what I got out of it, okay? So, our next slide, our overview. Overview of chapter uh, 16 of the Psalms. Um, David is praising God for guidance and has great gladness in troubling times. We're not exactly sure what those troubling times are. We can kind of guess from his life what that could be. Um, but yeah, he's very glad for guidance and he's just very glad in general, <laughs> which is nice. And he's also saying how glad he is that he has committed his life to God and grateful for his inheritance. So that can be summed up as David is praising God for guidance and great gladness in troubling times. And then we have our second part of our or, which is the A, the application. 
How can we apply what we just learned from chapter 16? We should be loving our fellow Christians. Huge application. Um, those that are also serving God and also uh, will be receiving this inheritance. That's who I'm talking about. You know, that's the fellow Christian because Christian can be such a buzzword. I've heard people say, well, I'm not really a Christian. I don't associate with that. I'm just a follower of Christ. And it's like, okay. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. It's, we, we, we try to define ourselves so much, but we should be loving everyone around us, you know, um, and making sure we're doing right by them as well, not just saying all love all the time, right? And then we have our last part of the or, the R, relationship. And I would say it, the theme from this one was building our trust and confidence in God. Speak to God and speak to yourself about who God is. Like I was saying, you are my Lord. You are my God when we're praying. And build that comfort. Build that comfort of his control on your life and in your life. That even when you don't hear an answer, you can be still and know that he is God. So find comfort and build confidence in God's control. That is a good relationship builder that we can take from chapter 16. So I promised in between to do a Q&A, and I will keep it short, so I'll take like maybe one or two questions or comments or something if you do have anything before we move into 17, because I want to be able to get through that as well. So before I do, was there any questions or comments? Yes. Um, in verse 4, when it says, or take up their names on my lips, yes. does he mean he's God? Yes. Okay. Yeah, he's basically saying, I'm not going to go with their practices, and I'm not going to be praying to pagan gods like they're doing or, or following their beliefs or anything like that. That's the names. That names is referring to gods or idols that those pagans would be following. Yes? Okay, and also um, in verse 5, when he says, Lord, you alone are my portion in my cup. Yes. You know, I love bringing that word up. Yes. <laughs> I tried to look at, like, cup, like the container, all that. I don't, does that apply? It's a different, it's a different cup. Believe it or not, it's a different word. So it's not container. It is, it is actually uh, translated from the Hebrew to the word cup. I looked into it too because I knew you were going to ask that question. <laughs> it is not container. This use of the word cup is actually used in another verse in the Bible. I forget where it is. It's in the New Testament. But it's actually used next to that container version of it. But that container, which we read in chapter 10 or 11, I forget, the one where it said, you know, this is your cup to be whatever. That's when it was translated to container, right? That same word, that same Hebrew word in this other verse was translated to bowl, okay? So another type of container. So this word that we see here, cup, and I should have looked up what this one is, was right next to that one. It basically said, this is your, potion, this is your portion of your cup, and this bowl is of my wrath. So it's two very different concepts. You could say that it's a container of sorts, um, but I would not put it in the same context of what I had said last time. Um, this is something that I would say it's the same as portion. I, I would say that he's basically just doubling up on himself. It's kind of like when you repeat something to give emphasis on it. So he's saying, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. It could have just been, the Lord is my portion and my portion. But it is the same, it is the same in Hebrew as it is in English. It is that cup. It's not the container. Which, if you wanted to apply it, you could. But I would say, nah, probably not. To add to that real quick, I think when he says in here portion and cup, he's referring to sustenance, portion meaning a portion of food, and cup meaning a portion of drink that would go along with the food. So kind of a complete sustenance picture, I think is what he's getting in there. 
that is fair. Yeah, I didn't look into the word portion. I quickly was going through that one because I was focused on cup. I would have to look into that to see what portion actually means in the Hebrew too, because that would be interesting to see if, because we see that a lot. We see portion a lot in the Bible and there's definitely different words for that. All right, if you have any other questions and you don't want to forget it, write it down now and we'll get it at the end. But yes, let's get into Psalm 17 and close this out for the evening. I would normally, like I did with the first one, read through the whole thing, but this is longer. So I'm not gonna read all the way through. We're just gonna dive right into the first one and uh, the first verse and just go from there. Um, yeah, we're greeted by a title. You know me, I love Psalm titles. Uh, the title of this one is In the Shadow of Your Wings, which is actually in one of the verses later on. I don't know if it's the best title for this, um, but the important thing, again, here is the subtitle, A Prayer of David. So again, we know this is David, and it's so obviously David that you wouldn't be able to say it's not when you're reading it. Um, so that didn't even need to be there, but I'm glad it is. So let's read uh, verses one and two. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. For your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. So here's a common theme in Psalms. David needs help <laughs> in a time of crisis. Um, so because of that, there's no link to a specific problem in David's life with this particular Psalm. I will say that I think it is um, King Saul trying to kill him which is a big part of his life. And I think a lot of these Psalms revolve around that. And we'll see why later on it's pretty specific to it, but there's no actual uh, agreed upon link to what he's talking about, what his issue is this time. But David needs help. Um, David went through many troubling times in his life. So I'm, I'm, I'm saying this is probably King Saul. Uh, but the point is David is declaring justice for his cause, whatever it is. Uh, he believed that his cause was just, and for that, he believed that God had reason to hear his plea. Uh, give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Uh, David's basically saying, I'm going to tell you the whole truth of my situation. <laughs> Almost to say, I don't deserve this problem because I have not put myself into it. And it's a weird way of saying that. Um, from your presence, let my vindication come. A very common theme with David, for good reason. I've mentioned this before. Um, but uh, David had that predicament with King Saul. That's why I think it's in this case. Um, he had many opportunities to retaliate and get King Saul, but he didn't um, because he knew that he shouldn't. He was waiting for God's vindication on the situation. So here again, we see David asking for the same outcome. Let your eyes behold the right. Again, rightly focusing on God's justice before his own cause. So yeah, we can, we can kind of pray the same way make sure it lines up with God's will. Uh, and if we're even praying that God's justice be done first in the situation, that's important too. I know we can come in prayer sometimes and come in with an, our own agenda, but David is showing us that even if he believes so wholeheartedly that he is right in the situation, he's not putting his own cause before God's justice, which is very important. And then verses three and four, which is still on the screen. Excellent. Um, you have tried my heart. You have visited me by night, again, at night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. 
We see again David talking about guidance and counsel in the night. Um, even when he should be resting, he's kind of desperate for the things of God. His, his mind is wandering. Um, you have tried my heart. Where was that? You've tried my heart. The first thing in verse 3. You've tried my heart. Tried here is meaning refined. That's the Hebrew word there. So you've refined my heart. Uh, and then he goes to say, you have tested me and you will find nothing. David is basically referring to the trials that he'd been put through, but also his own self-test. He's kind of made up <laughs> in a way. Um, something that we should all be doing. Uh, when we bring our requests to God in prayer, be okay with a different outcome than what you're asking for. Um, be more focused on his will and his justice than winning, winning your cause, right? Um, and also sometimes just examining our hearts in general before prayer is a good practice. Uh, this is definitely a discipline, but it's important. Um, our new friend, Dr. James Boyce, who I mentioned before, <laughs> had uh, some suggestions of questions that you can kind of ask yourself when you examine your own heart before prayer. Examining your own heart before prayer is super important as evidence in this psalm. But these are some of the questions that Dr. James Boyce suggests you ask yourself before prayer, not in prayer, before prayer. Are we being disobedient? Are we being selfish with whatever we're gonna request, whatever we're gonna pray about? Are we neglecting some important duty in doing this? And uh, are our priorities in order? So making sure that whatever we're asking to, our, to the best of our ability is lining up with God's will, right? Because we can't fully know what that is, but it is important to check yourself. Check yourself before you pray. Verses 3 and 4 is basically saying, is David basically saying, I am careful not to uh, be speaking in a sinful way. I am not deceiving others. I am not uh, promoting my cause at the expense of God's justice. Uh, it's almost kind of like he's saying, I'm not gossiping about this. You know, I'm making sure that I'm coming to you first and that I'm getting my heart right before just saying, well, I think this is the right thing to do and blah, 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 blah. He's basically saying, none of that's happening. Um, yeah, get ourselves right in this situation like David is doing here. Um, and then David in verse four is also saying, I am living by your words, God. I'm avoiding the violent ways of man. I'm not indulging in those things. He's making sure everything can possibly be lined up to make sure that he is heard properly, um, which is an interesting way to approach prayer. So then we have verse five. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Um, this verse is saying, God, I am staying on track and I'm going to stay that way. Everything I said is true and I intend to keep it that way. Um, now here's the interesting thing about this. I just stumbled upon this. I was not looking for it or trying to go any further because I thought this was pretty straightforward, this verse. It was pretty clear. Um, if we go into the New King James Version, which I like this version of the Bible, this translation, it looks super different. Uphold my steps in your past that my footsteps may not slip. He's asking in this one. In, in the ESV, he's saying, my steps have held fast to your past. My feet have not slipped. He's saying directly, like, yep, that's what's happened. But in the New King James Version, he's saying, please help me to uphold my steps in your paths that my footsteps may not slip. Interesting. Why? Hmm? Why? Why, I say? <laughs> well, I have the answer. It's more requesting than affirming. It's not to say that this is totally wrong, that we shouldn't be praying this way, because even in our walk of faith, we can slip up, absolutely. So this is a good thing to pray. But if we're looking at the original Hebrew, which I've broken this down word by word, 
we can see how the words are actually broken down. And we have it basically following this flow. My steps have clung to your path. My feet have not slipped. So I think the ESV has it better than the New King James, based on how the original Hebrew is. And I'm, I'm saying, you know, it could be phrased and worked into a request, like the New King James put it, where it's him asking. But I don't think that's how the original prayer was intended. I think this truly was, and if we're looking at the context of it, David's kind of making his case, right? He's saying, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not uh, deceiving anybody in my prayer. I'm coming to you first. Um, and then he would be following up by saying, my steps have been, I'm on this path already, and I'm not going to fall away from it. So I think that's how it was originally intended. However, again, not a bad thing if, uh, for us to pray the way that David may have presented it in the other way of saying, you know, make sure that I don't slip up. Make sure that I stay on this path. That's fine too. But I think it's the, the way the ESV, uh, ESV presents it. And then we have verses 6 to 8 to 9, 8 to 9, 6 through 9. Okay, I'm going to read 6 through 9. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. So David, David feels kind of calm here. Whatever his crisis may be, which, again, it's not explicitly said, but I think it's the King Saul thing, he felt that he was being heard in this moment, as we see evidence, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Um, but notice, notice that the next thing he says, still, incline your ear, hear my words. He's respecting God, but still confident that what he is asking for is right, right? Um, and then we move into, wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. I am personally in the habit of asking for small things in prayer, <laughs> not big things. Uh, not because I don't think God can do more, but I almost, um, I almost don't want to burden myself with the requests, if that makes sense. Like it'll be something that I have to carry if I ask God for that request, which is not the right way to think of it. Um, and we see here that that's not the case. Uh, don't make your expectations small. Uh, we shouldn't be thinking, this is too great of a thing to hope. Don't think that way. This prayer is actually quite showing the opposite. Wondrously show your steadfast love. Another translation, New King James, I keep referring to it, but New King James says, show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. And that's not a small thing to ask. That is a huge thing to ask. Um, so as we pray, kind of think towards that too. Don't be afraid to ask for the big stuff. And then verse 8. We have, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Apple of your eye caught me off guard, right? I thought, man, that's a modern phrase. Why is that in the Bible? Guys, it's in the Bible a lot for some reason. And I had to figure out why, and I did. Um, so it is a modern phrase, um, but the word for apple here is the Hebrew ishon, which means pupil, pupil of the eye. So this is really the meaning. It's saying, keep me at the center of your eye. But wait, that's not all. Uh, the eye is a carefully guarded, protected, and fragile part of our body, right? And at the center of that fragile part of our body is the pupil. 
So this is something precious and easily injured, right? So David's basically saying, I want to be kept by God as if I was something fragile, right? Um, so this is, this is a modern phrase uh, being used to better explain this concept. Apple of my eye is something that is important to you, right? If you are the apple of my eye, you are important to me. Um, and that's what David is asking. And we see this apple of your eye phrase used in multiple places in the Bible. Um, I have on the screen that Ishon, not only is the pupil of the eye, but also the middle of the night, the deepest blackness. So literally the center. Um, and why is the word apple even used? My best um, understanding of it, uh, if we take it from the modern phrase, is it actually means the aperture of your eye, which means the center, the much, what an aperture can open and close, letting in more light. And it comes from aperture, so it becomes apple. And also an apple is something that is fragile and can be bruised and can be broken. Um, an apple, the original word of apple, means fruit. It is like the first word for fruit. So there's a lot of things that it could be. But the important thing is that in this context, every time that it shows up in the Bible, it means pupil. It does. It means the center of your eye, which is fascinating. Um, and I didn't expect to see that in the Bible, but there it is. Uh, and I wish I had written down the other places that it shows up because they're all very interesting. But right after that, we have another phrase, another interesting term, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Um, this one's a little easier to grasp onto. Uh, it's like how mother birds shield their young chicks from predators or the elements or uh, other dangers. And these Hebrew words line up to mean uh, conceal me in the shadow of your wings. So it's basically exactly how it is in the Bible. Um, hide me in the shadow, conceal me in the shadow, which is super interesting. And then verse nine. Yeah, let's actually, let's read verse eight because it goes with verse nine. Keep me, as the apple, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. We are getting some more context clues into David's situation. Again, I believe, this to believe, I believe this to be when King Saul sent out deadly enemies to try and kill David. Um, and we're seeing that for David, this is not just oppression, right? He literally is citing this as deadly enemies who surround me. So this is like an actual threaten, threatening situation to his life. It's not just David saying, I'm going through a tough time right now, God, please help me. He's saying, I'm gonna die. <laughs> so please help me. It is, it is way more dire of a situation. And if we go to the next portion, this is going to be a huge chunk. We're almost done, guys. Almost through. 10 through 14. Yeah, we're going to do like the rest of this, pretty much. So they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by, my, by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. So they close their hearts to pity. This is fun. This is, this is probably the most fun thing that I found in the Bible uh, so far in this chapter. Um, pity, in the original Hebrew, is not even going to try to say this. We're going to go for it, though. Kaleb? Kaleb. Something like that, right? And it means fat. So this verse is really saying they have closed up their fat hearts, which is super funny. Um, but what it actually means is they were insensitive and they spoke proudly. So having a fat heart means to be very closed off, 
very insensitive, which would be like kind of the opposite today. If you were to say someone had a fat heart, maybe it means that they love everybody or something like that. But in this context, that fat is bad, having a fat heart. Um, so it, this uh, chapter 10 is saying, they close their hearts to pity. That word pity literally means fat. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. So they're saying they're insensitive and they spoke proudly. So David isn't really insulting them. The, uh, these would be the deadly enemies that are coming to uh, surround him and hurt him. Um, he's just describing the nature of them. Uh, so they have surrounded our steps and set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. David is describing his enemies further here, uh, further here with their wild beast-like attempts to harm him like lions would destroy their prey. I know this is, uh, we, we know that this, this is physically happening to David now, basically. Um, lions is something that we see a lot. Justin mentioned it in some of his teaching. We're going to see it a lot more. Lions is used a lot to uh, show the animalistic, beast-like attempts of killing David. Um, but we can honestly still, uh, we can still apply this to ourselves. We can feel this way without the fear of death, that feeling of the walls closing in on us, being surrounded, feeling trapped, and that's where David is. So here comes David's call to action, right? Verse 13, arise, O Lord, right? Confront him, subdue him. David is dependent on God to protect him. David wasn't afraid of his enemies, which I would have been, but he wasn't. But he needed his enemy to be defeated by the hand of God, not by his own. This is a continuing theme. Uh, continuing on, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. And then we have, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, you fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. Um, yeah, men of the world whose portion is in this life. That's super sad. Uh, David is having some sympathy, kind of, a little bit, I would say, sympathy uh, here for his enemies, it seems. These men are cold, they're arrogant, we've learned this, but they also have nothing to live for but this life. They aren't thinking of eternity. They are not focusing on the guidance of God. Their portion is in this life. This is in direct contrast to what David uh, said about himself in chapter 16, where he said, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, which we talked about. But as we go on, David kind of shows why some of them may be satisfied with living with just this life. They have wealth, you know, the, their womb is uh, with treasure, which is basically saying their belly's filled with treasure. Um, they have children, you know, satisfied with children, and they have so much that they can leave inheritance to their children. They have extra. The word here um, for they leave their abundance to their infants, infants, um, so they have so much that they can give extra to their small children who probably won't even be able to appreciate it or understand what they're even inheriting. Um, just crazy. Um, but why, why is David saying this? He's basically saying, my enemies live for this life, there are some satisfactions in this life, as he is citing, but they are missing out on eternity. They are content and do not realize that they should not be content. They are remembering the present, but forgetting their future. It is truly sad, and we have all seen it. Um, those that are just okay with not seeking God or faith or anything to do with the church, and they succeed and do fine. So in all regards, they're okay in this life, but they are denying themselves uh, an existence and an inheritance outside of this life, which is really sad when you think about it. Um, blissfully unaware of what there could be. So let's bring it home. Verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. As for me, David is not 
David is not putting it back on him. He's now putting it back on himself after his description of the enemies. That first thing, as for me, we're talking about his enemies. Now he's saying, now come back to me. I shall behold your face. Um, being in the presence of God one day, that's what he's talking about. This whole verse is very significant, 15. Um, even though it's that one little section, David was basically saying that he knew his destiny was to be made into the likeness of God's image, right? Um, now we're made in the image of God, but there's portions later in the Bible where we talk about, Paul actually writes about this in Romans 8, um, about being the likeness of the, uh, God's image. But David knew that he wouldn't be satisfied with the things of earth because he wanted to be face to face with God, receiving God's righteousness and awaking and living in the reality of heaven which is like the Christian walk of faith. We live this life fully with the knowledge that this is not the end goal, knowing that this uh, form and this earth is not something that we should be clinging on to. So that's important to hold on to. So let's just recap it. Get it all done. Let's do our or, all right? Overview of chapter 17. David is trusting in God to help him out of a dangerous situation. He's putting himself down to elevate God's justice. He's also seeking eternity and not the things of this earth. Um, so the overview is David is trusting in God to help him out of a dangerous situation, elevating God's justice, and David is seeking eternity. Good thing to focus on. Number two, application. We should be praying with sincerity and also examining our own hearts before going into prayer, making sure our own selfishness is not a stumbling block and making sure we aren't spreading lies about whatever we are praying for. Again, check yourself before you wreck yourself, basically. Um, pray with sincerity and examine your heart before prayer. Before prayer, right? You know, and if you find that there's something wrong, go into prayer and say, God, help me through this. Um, and then relationship, the last part of our or God is just. Simple. <laughs> uh, God is just, and he does listen, and he does answer, and we have that knowledge from this, and we can build our relationship through continued learning and communication, loving more and more about God each time that we open his word and read through it. But it can be simply, God is just. That is what we can build our relationship off of from this. So that is chapter 17 of Psalms 16 and 17. Were there any questions about any of this in total? Yes? What do you make out in, um, in verse 14 when it says, you fill the room with treasure? I just thought it was very interesting this idea that David's talking about how wicked these men are yet at the same time it's God who's giving them the words they have as life. Charles Spurgeon has a great quote about this. He says, does a generous man not throw bones to a dog? Right? Um, it's that concept of yes, God allows the wicked to prosper. We talked about this in chapters 10 and 11. Um, it'll, he allows it to happen, right? That's why David is acknowledging it here too. You will fill their womb with treasure, they will be satisfied. He's not saying that the entire world is devoid of any satisfaction. He's saying that they will find that, but those who are actually seeking me honestly, right? So yes, God is in control of that situation too. We talked about that, I think it was 10, where he talked about like the wicked will prosper off of this earth. And that was such a frustrating thing. The kingdom has now been flipped over, right? Um, it's kind of the same thing here. He's kind of getting at that where it's like, I know that you've allowed these things to happen. That, there's a whole, um, I wrote it down. There's a whole sermon by Spurgeon called, hold on, uh, Taking Possession of Our Inheritance. Super, super interesting. Kind of really heavily focuses on chapter 14 if you're interested in kind of reading up on that specifically. Any other questions? Yes. Where do the titles of the Psalms come from? Ah, yes. Okay. So, 
back in uh, chapters 10 and 11, I talked about this. This was a debate for a while in the biblical community until the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. The Dead Sea Scrolls were like these very old dated manuscripts to when uh, like the earliest versions of some of these books of the Bible. Um, and the psalm titles were believed to just be added by translators after the fact, but they found that during the time of Ezra, a lot of these psalm titles were included in it. So it's basically, they, they exist purposefully just to give an overview of what you're about to read. The book of Psalms is basically a collection of hymns, thoughts, and different writers of the time put together. So whoever put these together, they assumed was the ones that were writing the, the titles for the overview of each book. Um, or each chapter rather, but actually they were connected from the beginning, which is super cool. Um, there's a really cool uh, paper, if you want to Google it, called The Authenticity of the Psalm Titles. I forget who wrote it. I just said this like a couple weeks ago, but if you just Google The Authenticity of the Psalms Titles, it's a whole paper, it's super interesting about the Dead Sea Scrolls, where they even came from. Yes. James Frazier, thank you, someone for writing that down. James Frazier wrote this paper. But yes, that's where they come from. They, they were originally written with the writers. Either, you know, David wrote some of these himself, these Psalms, but he also had someone write them for him too. So he may have been just been dictating what he was saying. So whoever was doing that may have put that in there. But the ultimate conclusion of that paper, if you don't read it, is that um, they are authentic, they are real, um, and they have been put in the Bible for a purpose. And even if that purpose is just to make it easier to know which psalm you're getting to, because there's 150, that's a good purpose. Yeah. Any other questions? Great. Jade, Sorry. go ahead. So I have the NIV, and I don't know if this is really relevant, but in verse 9, um, it says, From the wicked who are out to destroy me, from my mortal enemies who surround me. Mm. Does the word mortal really like I don't think that changes too much. Um, if I think it just honestly emphasizes the, that this has to deal with probably his biggest rivals being that of King Saul when they were after him, because it's something that he's dealt with over and over and over again. You know, deadly and mortal could be the same, but I think mortal meaning that is the most important enemy in his life, probably the only one at that point. Um, I don't think that changes the context of it, though. I don't think that would mean that it would be somebody different than um, King Saul and his men who were trying to hunt him down and kill him. Yes? Just um, a comment. I thought verse 89 is very interesting, keeping as the apple of your eye. When you first, it feels almost presumptuous in a way that we would have the right to yeah. God and say, protect me like the most valuable part of you. Like it's hard for me to suggest that I can actually say that to God. I'm such a sinful human being. But did, did that run through your mind at all? Yeah, and it even ran through my mind a little bit further because of who was writing it, David, who didn't have the salvation of Jesus and the Messiah coming. So he even had less of a footing. But he also had a very direct connection to God and knowing that he was kind of anointed in this whole situation. So. I guess he kind of felt special in that way too, but not, it's tough for us to think of it that way because we're so focused on we are the sinners, right? Which is important to remember that we are the sinners, but we are also saved and appointed to be sons and daughters of Christ, which is a huge responsibility. So he cherishes us, you know? There's lots of verses in the Bible that talk about that specific thing. So I wish I had written some of them down, 
But yeah, I did think of that too. That's a really good comment. Um, but it even hit me more because of David not having that salvation aspect, right? So it's like, how could he even say that at that point? He doesn't even have the, the promise, but he had a different promise, right? So yeah, good comment. I'm going to pray real quick. And if you have any other questions, you can ask me afterwards. Um, but I want to be courteous to the podcast time as well. So God, thank you for this time that we've had to dive into the Psalms, 16 and 17. Thank you for the questions. And I hope that... Um, this time has really allowed us to grasp something and take something home with us. And each week that we get to gather like this, let, the, let it be fruitful, God. Uh, I thank you for everyone here. I pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to this week's class. If you are between the ages of 18 to 40 and you're interested in joining us in person, class is held every Friday night beginning at 6.30 p.m. at Columbus Baptist Church. You can find us online at cbcnj.com. That's cbcnj.com. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next week.